Now, before I read to you our next section of Matthew, where we're going to pick up and finish off chapter 27 tonight, I want to kind of pull out a couple more things that we left off at the end of last week's study. You remember we looked at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and the last one was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I touched on this at the end of our study last week, but I didn't have time to really develop it as much as I'd like to. Jesus' fellowship with the Father at this point, at the end of his suffering on the cross, the fellowship with the Father is restored. All through his life, he called God his Father, but during those three horrific hours, we see him in agony calling out to God. Now we see the fellowship is restored. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's a lot we can learn from that phrase and a lot of deep theology that we should understand from that phrase. The son is receiving what he prayed for in the garden. Go with me to John chapter 17 real quick and look at verses 1 through 5. Jesus prays an awesome prayer in John 17, but at the beginning of his prayer, look closely at what he prays on that night right before he was crucified in John 17, 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He says it's time. The hour has come. The reason I came to this earth was to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. I've lived the sinless life. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've passed your word on to those you've given me. And now glorify yourself through my death, but also glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had since the beginning, before the foundation of the world. Jesus was ready to go be with the Father. And I hope every one of you have this excitement, this hope, and the, the joy within us of knowing we're saved. We're going to go to heaven when we die. We're not afraid of that day of death. We're not worried about when it's going to come. Because we know that when we leave this life, we go immediately, don't miss that, immediately to be with God. You see, unfortunately, there are those who teach that there's such a thing as soul sleep. I don't know if you've heard this, but some of you probably have. Some denominations teach that because the Bible describes uh, those who died in Christ as having fallen asleep, that there are those who teach that when, when a soul dies, they go to sleep until the return and the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the return of Jesus Christ to the earth and all, and all the bodies will be come up out of their grave. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Do you remember that Jesus has already told the thief on the cross today? You'll be with me in paradise. Also, don't miss the fact that actually uh, in John chapter 8, verse 56, we looked at that last week. Remember how Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they were like, wait a minute, we know exactly what you just said. You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Of course, then he goes on and says, before Abraham was born, I am. But he said, Abraham saw my day. In other words, Abraham, who had died many, many years before, saw Jesus is coming to the earth. Have you ever thought about the fact that in Matthew chapter 17, and it's also recorded in, in, in Luke as well, in chapter 9, did you know that actually the Bible talks about how when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain and His glory shone through His flesh, who appeared on the mountain with Him? Moses and Elijah. And by the way, if you read Luke's account, they were discussing with Jesus the things that were soon to take place in Jerusalem. Doesn't sound like they were groggy. 
That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 1, go with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, look at verses 19 through 23. Paul's in a prison right now, and he's not sure how this is all going to play out at this point. And in Philippians chapter 1, look at verses 19 through 23. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard pressed. I'm torn between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But then he goes on. But to stay in the body will mean more fruitful labor. It'll be a blessing to you. And now that I pray about this and think about this, I sense God's telling me that I'm going to stay in my body for a while. But listen to what he said. The same one who God used to speak through him to say absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Jesus, when he died, went straight to the Father. And Paul knew that when he died, he went straight to be with the Father. Jesus himself had told his disciples in John chapter 14, In my Father's house are many rooms, many mansions. And if it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you'll be where I am. Folks, I'm just going to say something to you. I want you to hear. I'm not asking you to be stupid, but I'm also asking you to not be fearful about all this COVID stuff. The Bible is very, very clear that the day of our birth and the day of our death have already been written out by God. And Jesus himself said, who of you by worrying can add one single hour to your life? Would you believe those statements are true according to the scriptures? Did COVID change that? Yet all of a sudden, I've seen so many Christians in my travels around this country in churches who are so fearful. Stop being fearful. Again, I'm not asking you to go kiss everybody on the mouth. I'm just saying, let the Spirit of God put within you the peace that passes understanding and lead you know when to not to hug or when to hug. And when it's, Don't live by policies and fear. Live by the Spirit of God. And because Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, his fellowship was restored. But not only that, as he went into the Father's presence, the Bible tells us that he went into the Holy of Holies with his own blood. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. In Hebrews 6, verse 13. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by, to whom, by whom to swear, he swore to himself, swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen closely. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The Bible says that since Jesus has gone into the Father's presence and He's offered His own blood, and we're going to look at that later on our study in just a little bit, because He's done this, the Father has accepted His sacrifice. No more sacrifices need to be made. And we too now can go into the presence of God. Not only now, but when we die, we're guaranteed. We have a steadfast hope, a sure confidence that we are going to go and be with Jesus. And that is wonderful. You know, for years, as God has used me to travel around the country and preach, and a lot of times in parts of the world that are a little bit unsafe, people are saying, don't you feel a little bit nervous going there? And my answer has always been the same. The safest place for me to be is in the center of God's will. And whatever he has for me, whether it be life or death, Paul said, I don't know how this is going to play out, but I know either way I'm going to be delivered whether it's by life or by death. And folks, it's time in this world when everybody's worried about dying, when everybody's worried about being sick, that those of us who are true followers of Jesus Christ would allow the truth of the scripture to sink into our hearts. Jesus has gone to the Father. He's paved the way. We have been made righteous. We're guaranteed that we go to be with him the moment we stop breathing on this earth. What have we got to worry about? So I pray that you would begin to allow in the truth of this and the scriptures and the spirit of God within you to give you this encouragement. You're going to be all right because Jesus has already gone ahead of us and paved the way. Oh, and let me show something else, too, though, that some of you might have heard over the years. A lot of us have been taught that Jesus suffered in hell for three days. Even the Apostles' Creed used to say that he died, that he went to hell and three days later rose from the dead. Folks, that's not what the scripture teaches. Jesus didn't go and suffer in hell, because if he went and had to suffer in hell for three days, tetelestai couldn't have been said. Remember what tetelestai is? Remember he said it's finished, paid in full? If it's not paid in full, if he had to suffer in hell. And what did he tell the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me where? In paradise. What did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus didn't go and suffer in hell for three days. He went directly into the presence of God. So... Don't let bad teaching confuse you and take away your hope, take away your confidence. And on top of that, Matthew and Mark and Luke give evidence of a profound miracle that God did to prove that Jesus had opened a way to God. The veil in the temple, according to the recording of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the veil in the temple covering the most holy place was torn from the top to the bottom. Go back to Matthew 27. Look at verses 50 through 54. Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. We'll come back to that later. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went in, into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jump over to Luke's account. Actually, we'll go to Mark next. It'll be easier for you. Just turn over to Mark. One more book to the right. Go to Mark 15. Look at verses 33 through 39. It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's from noon to three. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Jump over to Luke. Look at verse 20, chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. Luke 23, 44 through 49. It was Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had, happened, what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Now, three times now we see recorded that at the moment Jesus died and went into the presence of the Father, the veil of the temple, and if you've ever done a study of this, you'll understand it wasn't a thin piece of cloth. It, you know, you got your, Rick's got his hands back here this white. It was thick, unbelievably thick, not something you could tear apart. And not only that, it was really, really tall. The whole thing was so high you couldn't reach the top. And it was torn, not from the bottom to the top, but torn from the top to the bottom. And I don't know if you all know anything about this, but that was the thing that separated the ability of anyone to go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God where the ark was and where God dwelt. The only one allowed in there was who? The high priest, and how often? Only once a year, and that not without blood. In other words, he couldn't even just go in once a year. He had to go in with blood. And the bell was attached to him in case God struck him dead. You could, if he stopped hearing the bell, he'd drug him out. Yeah, all that. Go real quickly with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Remember, we've already left off in Hebrews 6 where he's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not one not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the, if the blood of goats, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person's with the ashes of a heifer and sanctify, sorry, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus went that day into the presence of the Father in the true holy of holies, in the presence of God, not in the one made by hands. And he didn't come with the blood of bulls and goats. Whose blood did he come with? His own. And he offered it once for all, and he has made it possible for us to be forgiven. And that way, that, that veil that was separating man from God was removed by God. Now, I don't have any more to talk about this except to say I've often wondered how soon the Jews put the veil back. And to be honest with you, I'd love your help. I've already asked some other people. I've yet to find anywhere in any kind of documentation about what the Jews did with the veil. But they had to have put it back, knowing who the Jews are and how they figured that it dealt with the death of Jesus. 
And they continued their sacrificial systems and all that stuff for a few more years. And how silly would it have been for them after God had removed it and said there's now access to the Father, taken care of by Jesus. How silly would it have been for them to put it back? Wouldn't it have been silly to have them, some lady sew it all back up and put it back? It'd be dumb, wouldn't it? But be careful. We do the same thing. Do you realize that because of Jesus, God has opened a way for us to be made right with God. We're at peace with God. We have access to the Father. We can go boldly to the throne of grace. But how many of you over the years have had this thought? Well, I'm not worthy. I haven't been living like I ought. Maybe I need to do a few things to get back in God's good graces. Anybody ever felt that way? We all have, haven't we? Satan wants us to think that there's still stuff we have to do. And in doing so, we put the veil back up that has been totally removed. We have been given access to the Father. And enjoy that, that peace that comes with it. It's been offered for us by Jesus. Now, I read what Matthew's account said to us about these people who rose from the dead at Jesus' resurrection and appeared to many in the holy city of Jerusalem. To be honest with you, there's not a lot more written about this. Matthew's the only one that records it. Mark and Luke and John don't record it. And personally, I think that if these people had lived a long time after the resurrection, they, we probably would have some more written about what happened, in, not just in the scriptures, but in other writings. But there's nothing else written about it. I believe it really happened. Because the Bible said it happened, it happened. And I think it's a picture of what Christ is going to do when he raptures his church. At Jesus' resurrection, some saints who were well-known saints, their bodies came back to life. And they got up out of their tombs and they went around and preached a little bit. And they most likely disappeared and went back to be with the Father. Do you know? Well, go. don't take my word for it. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now remember, as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, had these uh, Old Testament saints been sleeping from the time of their death until the time that their bodies resurrected? No. They were already in the presence of God, just like Abraham and Moses and Elijah, knowing fully of what's going on. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, listen to verses 13 through 18. Paul says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do not have, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, listen closely, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't miss this. This is not the second coming of Jesus when he comes and sets up his kingdom on the earth. This is a total different situation. This is the rapture of the church when he gathers his church and takes us off of this planet prior to the last seven-year trial of tribulation that we've looked at. We've seen all through God's scripture, all through history, we see a picture of how before God brought a final judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he got his righteous ones out. Before he brought the judgment on the earth, he'd take his Noah and his family and put them up above it in the ark, if you will, took them above all that happened. And God, all through scripture, if you remember from Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is talking with God about what God's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham makes this statement. He says, God, I know who you are. It's not like you to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. 
You wouldn't do such a thing. And God keeps saying, I won't. If there's so many righteous there in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't bring judgment. What if the number's this number? I still won't. Don't miss that, folks. It's not who God is. When he brings the judgment on the earth, which the tribulation period is going to be, and the time of God's wrath, and the judgment that's coming, he's not going to have us be here and sweep us off with the rest of the mankind. He, well, we think we already said it. In John 14, listen to the context again. In my Father's house, in his presence, there's lots of room. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where? Where I am. The context is coming, taking us, taking us back to be with him. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, I don't want you to grieve about these people that have already died and they're with the Lord who are asleep. God's going to bring them with Jesus when he comes. They're already in his presence. They're going to get their new bodies at that time, and their bodies are going to come up out of the dust of the earth. And we who are alive are going to be transformed and caught up, and we'll go be with him in the, in the air. That's an awesome thing. So guess what? Now I've just given you two things to look forward to. You're either going to die and go be with Jesus, or the rapture is going to happen before that, and you still get to go be with Jesus. Those both sound good to me. Winning is right. Here's the question. Do you have that hope? Do you have that confidence? Do you have that surety that only comes through the Spirit of God confirming that you're His? If you don't know that you know that you know that you're His, folks, that is available to you if you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's now read Matthew 27 and finish our chapter so we can finish our study tonight and tomorrow, I mean next week, or else we won't get done. But you get me preaching, I can't help it. Matthew 27, verses 57 through the end of the chapter. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone, and setting a guard. Now, here we see that there was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who came forward and asked for Jesus' body so that he could give him a proper burial. What do we know about Joseph so far from Matthew's account? He's a disciple of Jesus, so he was a believer in Jesus. What else do we know? He was a rich man. He has his own tomb, never been used, and he put Jesus in his own tomb, and the Bible also tells us he then rolled the stole to shut it. All right, that's what we know so far. There's something else about Joseph that you may not know, which is pretty cool. Go to me to Matthew, sorry, let's go to Mark first. Mark 15, verses 42 through 47. He was no ordinary disciple of Jesus. Mark 15, verses 42 through 47. Mark 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of what? 
the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, it says now that he, we know he was a member of the council. Does anybody know what the council is? That's the Sanhedrin. Go real quick back to Matthew 26. Look at verse 59. When's the last time we see the council? In Matthew 26, verse 59, look at what happens there. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Joseph of Arimathea wasn't just a rich dude who was a follower of Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the council. He was in that room when everybody was plotting to put Jesus to death and they were bringing all these false charges against him. Go to Luke 23. Go to Luke 23, verses 50 through 56. In Luke 23, verse 50, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was there, but he hadn't agreed. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And then it talks about the women who saw there and uh, were, were there as well. We'll come back to them in a little bit. Here was a Jewish man who was a part of the council, the Sanhedrin. He was in that room when all this stuff was going on. He wasn't in agreement. First off, I love how God had already taken care of Jesus' burial. And not only that, he's taking care of all the arrangements. Let this sink in for a minute. Who do you think typically would have been the ones to take care of Jesus' burial? His what? His disciples. Remember, his, family's pretty much, his family doesn't believe in him. He had to hand Mary over to John to take care of her. It would have been his disciples, all of his followers. Don't you think they would have been the ones to say, hey, let's take care of his burial? What did they all do? They all ran. The women were sticking around, but they were just kind of watching from a distance, didn't have a whole lot of power and authority. So God, knowing that Jesus didn't have anybody that was going to take care of his burial, had it all mapped out. And this rich man, who also happened to be part of the Sanhedrin, See, it's real easy for us. We've been doing our study to just lump that whole group of guys as all losers, all lost, all going to hell. Folks, you never know who's listening. You never know. In some of those areas where you have the most resistance at your work, there may be one or two of those people who may be even some of the most vocal who God's really, really working on. I found over the years, this one old farmer used to say, you get a pack of, skull, a pack of dogs all fighting in a middle, you throw the scald in hot water, the one that gets hit is going to come running out and yelping. And he said, a lot of times when the Holy Spirit's working on somebody, they make the most fuss. Don't assume you think someone's past that point. Keep loving them and sharing the truth and let God do his work. Jesus' Jesus's disciples didn't have any plans for his burial since they didn't even know it was going to happen, that his death was going to happen. And some of them already said they wouldn't let it happen. But when I say that God already had plans and burial arrangements for Jesus taken care of, 
he had them planned even way before that. Go to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 9. Isaiah 53, look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with who in his death? With the rich man. Isn't it interesting how the scripture keeps saying it was a rich man, it was a rich man? Way back in Isaiah 53, it said that a rich man was going to be used in his burial. Isn't that cool? That's way awesome. Oh, let me ask you a question. Did Joseph of Arimathea have a choice? Yes! But God already knew what his choice was going to be. I don't have time to walk you down this road. But the book of Isaiah, chapter 48 and other places, very clearly, chapter 46 as well, very clearly says that the way that God proves that he's God is he'll tell you the end from the beginning. Before it happens, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And that way you'll know that I'm God. And then he says, your little idols that you carved out of stone and wood that you all of a sudden bow down to and you made it with your own hands, ask them some questions, see if they can tell you anything. But God tells us ahead of time, he already sees how it's all played out. And he already told us way back in Isaiah's day that Jesus' death would be associated with a rich man. And the rich man shows up in his names of Joseph of Arimathea. And of all things, he's a part of that Sanhedrin was sitting there voting to have Jesus put to death. But he didn't agree. But you know what? Joseph of Arimathea wasn't alone in preparing Jesus' body for burial. Other gospel writers tell us that someone else came forward with him and publicly showed their faith. Their faith. They both showed their faith in Jesus and their love for Jesus. Oh, and by the way, this other person I'm about to introduce you to is someone else from the religious leadership of the Jews. Go to John 19. John chapter 19, look at verses 38 through 42. John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they, both Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place in where he was crucified, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden a new tomb in which no one had been yet laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now... He also is a part of this Sanhedrin. Now, before I go in and show you some more about Nicodemus, i got to point something else out to you that you may not know. Yes, it said that Joseph of Arimathea was a believer in Jesus and a disciple, but he was secretly for fear of the Jews. At this point, he's no longer secret. Because by going and asking for the body of Jesus, he's doing something that a lot of you might not have caught on yet. The fact that Joseph of Arimathea would, first of all, publicly ask for the body that he may give it a burial is him showing, I believe in this guy. But it's more than that. What happened to a Jew if you touched a dead body? You're unclean for seven days. What day was it? This is the time of the Passover, the time of the year that they've been waiting for in the preparation. And the Day of Atonement's not long after that. 
Joseph and Nicodemus both go and say, we don't care about any of that stuff anymore. We're not trying to be righteous anymore because by ke- we've kept the law. We don't care about the rituals anymore. We believe in Jesus and we believe that he was the one God sent and we're going to touch that dead body. And they both took his body, wrapped it and put some the spices on it and buried it in the tomb. They were, do you remember how the Pharisees wouldn't even go into the Gentiles' house during the trial for fear of becoming unclean, even though the law said that that wasn't the issue, but they didn't even want to even take a chance of being unclean. So they wouldn't even go into the Gentiles headquarters while Jesus was being tried. But these guys say, I don't care about any of that anymore. My faith is not in my following the rules. My faith is in this guy. And by touching a dead body, they had now made themselves unclean and unable to participate in the Passover. But you know what? They're participating in the Passover better than anybody else is going to in the next few days. Go to Philippians chapter 3. It reminded me of something Paul said. These two guys saying we don't care about that stuff anymore reminded me of something Paul said in Philippians 3 verses 4 through 9. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, my, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. By the way, do you think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were allowed back in the council? Nope. But they gave that all up. All the power and the prestige and the honor was all given up and they considered it rubbish because they became public in their faith in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, though, if you've been following along at all in your Bible, you'll know that actually God's been working on Nicodemus for a while. We don't know how long God had been working on Joseph of Arimathea. We see that he wasn't agreeing to what was going on. He was a believer and a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. But then he becomes public. But go back with me to John chapter 3. I want to show you a little bit of a progression here. Again, our job as evangelists, if you will, all of us have been called by in some way or another to share the good news. Our job is to just share the truth and let God do his work. It's not us who convinces people of of their need of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who opens people's eyes. Unfortunately, a lot of us have been taught to go and convince them and win the argument. And Would you like to pray that prayer now? And we do a lot of work that only the Holy Spirit can do. We wonder why our churches are so full of people that don't act like Christians. Well, it's because we got them to pray a prayer and we told them they were a Christian and they never got saved. Because we never let the Holy Spirit finish His work. You'll notice Jesus recognizes the fathers at work. And Jesus just plants seed with Nicodemus. Go to John chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, secretly, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it's come from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and hear and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, let me say something to you. The Bible actually says very clearly in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says there's no one righteous, not one. Verse 11 says there's no one who even seeks God. So if there's no one who seeks God, and no one will come to Him unless the Spirit draws Him, what has to happen for someone to come to faith? The Spirit has to draw them and begin. Oh, by the way, verse 45 of John 6, right after it says, No one come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Verse 45 says, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever learns and listens comes to me. In other words, everybody hears at some point. As evangelists, there are people who share the good news. As witnesses, let me give you that word. I think the term evangelist freaks too many of you out. As witnesses, ones are able to give testimony of the fact that Jesus is alive. You need to be looking for where God's at work. Go out into the field and look for where God's at work. For years, I've taught on sharing your faith with the idea of squeezing, sniffing, and thumping. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others may not. You ladies, when you go to the grocery store and you want to buy a cantaloupe, just because the cantaloupe's in the store doesn't mean it's ripe, right? Well, how do you know if that cantaloupe is ripe? A lot of you will squeeze it, sniff it, or thump it, right? God wants us to do the same as we go out into his harvest field, looking for where God's at work. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Ding, 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 ding. No one seeks God. The fact that he's even curious means my father's begun his work. Does that mean he's ready to be saved? No. God's begun his work, and all Jesus does is plant some more seed. Your Israel's teacher didn't understand these things and all this stuff. And then Jesus plants an amazing seed that I personally think took root at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We, and I'm going to show you, Nicodemus is being drawn. He's getting closer and closer to coming to faith. Joseph was already described as being a disciple of Jesus when he came and asked for the body of Jesus. All we see is that Nicodemus comes now and joins with him. I personally think something Jesus said to Nicodemus here in John 3 took root at the cross. What does he say there at the end of the section we just read? He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and he'll draw all men to himself. That was planted in the mind and the heart of Nicodemus. Go with me real quick to John chapter 7. You'll see God continuing to work on Nicodemus. John chapter 7, look at verses 40 through 52. John chapter 7, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
Now the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and who said to them, why didn't you bring him in? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had come to him before, and it was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus stands up for Jesus in the meeting one time. God's working on Nicodemus. I think Nicodemus came to faith when he's there throughout the trial proceedings and he sees Jesus crucified. And remember the seed that was planted before? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And I picture the Holy Spirit making it all come to fruition right there. And he goes with Joseph and says, I know you, you know me, we're in the same group. I know you're a believer, I am now. And they publicly go and ask for the body of Jesus, giving up on the Passover, giving up on their prestige and their position, and they became public followers of Jesus. Now, the Bible actually tells us there were others who believed in Jesus who were leaders in, in, in uh, Israel. Go with me to John 12. John chapter 12, look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see it? There were others who believed, but they weren't willing to acknowledge it because they were worried about what it was going to do in this life. Remember, we talked about that last week. Don't be living for this life. Live for the one to come. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Go for it. The scripture says that both of them Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus mm -hmm. were looking for the consolation. Oh, yes. And looking for the consolation. And we, in our generation, are we not looking up? And oh, looking definitely. And watching for it, definitely. Watching for it. And there's a reward, and they were being rewarded for that. Yes. In their heart, because they knew the scripture. Exactly. You know? Yep. So, and they were seeking for it. So but they wouldn't even have sought for it unless God had begun his work even in their heart. But you're right. Exactly. If you're hungering and watching for it, I actually believe that the Bible hints at the fact that those who have an intimate relationship, God has no favorites, but he has intimates. And if you have an intimate relationship, I think the scripture hints at the fact that God even lets those people know ahead of time when he's about to come get them. We see that with Peter. Remember how he said, I know that I'm about to soon be taken from this tent. The same Paul that in Philippians 1 said, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I think I'm going to stay in the body. Later at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4 said, I finished the race. It's time. And I know God's already prepared me for it. I think those of us who are intimates have that sense that he's going to come get us. But here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, listen to what the scripture says, what Jesus said. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. Let me ask you a question tonight. If Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had never become public in their faith, would they be in heaven? The answer is no. The answer is no. There were those who secretly believed, but for fear of the Jews wouldn't confess, and they're not in. Jesus said, if you don't publicly acknowledge me before men, I'll deny you before my father. 
The reason that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus we know are in heaven is because that secret belief that they knew what the truth was became public. Folks, that's why we get baptized. Our baptism should be a public profession. I'm not against people being baptized in a sanctuary, in a baptistry, but I love it when it happens out there at the beach. I love it when it happens in a pond or whatever with other people around who are trying to use the boat ramp at the same time. I think it's awesome because it's a public identification with Jesus Christ. Have you come forward in your faith? There are people that are listening right now, either online and in the, through the website or right and watching us here on Facebook or the YouTube channel. Let me ask you a question. Have you made public the fact that you believe in Jesus Christ? Not worrying about what other people are going to think and what other people are going to say. Not worrying about your mama who raised you in a different denomination. Are you going to be willing to become public for your, about your faith in Jesus Christ? I'll leave it at that and let the Spirit do His work. Now, we must also point out that as the disciples were scattered, there were some women who had been lovingly watching all this that happened to Jesus. And they were following to see what would happen. Again, we don't have time tonight to walk you back through those passages, but write these down and look at them later on. Matthew 27, verses 55 through 61, goes out of the way to name some of the women and how they were there. When all the disciples were scattered, these women were the ones who were watching. They followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and they saw where he was buried. Mark 15, verses 40 through 47, gives us some more insight into that. Mark 15, 40 through 47. Luke 23, again, verse 49, and also verses 55 through 56. I don't think it's an accident that God had the gospel writers go out of the way to mention the fact that there were some women who were there willing to stand there and watch and to see what was going on. And we're grateful that they did. There's a chance the disciples might not even have known where he was buried. But the women were paying attention to it. And the scripture says they saw where he was buried. Peter and John might not have even known where to run on Resurrection Sunday if, if they hadn't have been faithful. Folks, don't ever let, God, let Satan make you think that if your role is a woman and not a man, that you're lesser in the eyes of God. We all have different roles. This wrong attitude today of, well, I think men and women are equal. Yeah, you are equal in the eyes of God, but it doesn't mean we have the same roles. And all through Scripture, you see that God elevated the role of woman when society did not. Yet, He never elevated them to the point that they became apostles or pastors. The Scripture is very clear about that. It has nothing to do with worth or, or talents. It has everything to do with God has an order and a structure for everything. And it's the point to ultimate authority. Even those of us who are men or those of us who have been called to lead in the church, we're still under authority. We're still under the head. And folks, I just want you to understand, if you're a lady here today, God sees value in you. And thank God for the women. And by the way, you're about to see something about these women that may blow your minds. Go with me to Luke chapter 8. These women were mentioned earlier in Jesus' ministry. Go to Luke 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. This may surprise you. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their own means. Hang on for a second. 
Who was bankrolling the ministry as the disciples went out preaching and teaching? The women. The women were actually bankrolling it. Isn't that cool? Yeah, you like that, huh? Hey, here's the deal. Think about what happened when Paul was trying to go into Asia, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. And he tried to go into Mysia, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. And then later in that night, he has a dream of a man in Macedonia, a man in Macedonia saying, come preach the gospel to us. So Peter, Paul gets up and he goes and he goes to find where God's at work and he's looking for where God's drawing people and he finds a place of prayer and there were some women there. Who was the first convert in, in, in Macedonia? Lydia. Oh, and by the way, do you know Lydia was a seller of purple? Which means she was a very wealthy lady. <laughs> and she had influence. And the first convert in Europe was a woman. Again, God sees men and women equal in his eyes. There's no male or female when it comes to salvation, the book of Galatians says. Don't let that trip you into thinking that God doesn't have roles for men and women. Don't go that far. But don't ever think for a second that of lesser value. And to be honest, if we're faithful, many of us men listening right now have been taught how to walk with God more humbly and more submissively by our wives. I'm going to tell you something that may surprise you. You see me as this preacher and man of God who knows the word of God and studies the word of God. Did you know that it wasn't until I met my wife when we were dating that I, that I ever learned what a quiet time was? I was a youth pastor in a church. My second ministry, stint of youth pastor at ministry in my second church of ministry. And I go to pick her up one day at her house and she's sitting there with her Bible open and she's got a notepad and a journal. And I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, I'm having my quiet time. Now you have to understand this was before timeouts. I didn't think she was in trouble or anything like that. But I was like, what's a quiet time? And she began to show me that she would daily spend some time studying the Bible and journal about it. I still have my journals from those days now where I got my own and my soon-to-be wife was used of God to teach me how to spend time daily in the Word. Becky, I love you and thank you. Your value, ladies. Your value. Don't go beyond what God's planned, but don't think for a second that you're secondary. Here's the last thing we're going to deal with. Go back to Matthew 27. Look again at what it says in verse 62 and following. I had never seen this before until I was just reading through it, preparing for a study. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Wait a minute. Didn't they say that he had said that after three days he'd rebuild the temple? Go back to Matthew 26. Look at verses 59 through 61. Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They knew exactly what he said. That imposter said that after three days he would rise. Oh, when they were in the court situation, it didn't help their cause. So they lied and just twisted his words and said, oh, he said he'd rebuild the temple. They knew what he said. Isn't that interesting? His own disciples didn't know what he meant. 
let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 2. This isn't in my notes. This is free. Go to John chapter 2. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the, Jew, Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the disciples didn't even get what he was saying about rebuild the temple until after he was risen from the dead. But the ones who didn't believe in him knew exactly what he was saying. Again, I'm going to say to you, just go share the truth of God's word. You don't know who's getting it and who's not. There might be people out there that say they don't believe a word you're saying, and they know deep down it's true. And they understand it. And now they're wrestling with, am I going to come public or am I going to live for this life? Oh, Satan did it all the time. He knew what the truth was, and he'd twist it for sure. We live in a world today that you reach out and people know the truth, but they choose not to accept the truth. You know you're quoting Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God. That's out there. Again, not our job. But at the same time, yeah, we can pray for him, but we're not living for this world. You know, all through our Bibles... We've been reading David writing about things like, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We're living in those days when those people who have been there all along are now getting more and more bold and more and more public. Don't get freaked out by it. What does the Bible say we as followers of Jesus are supposed to do in this time? We're to look up. And we have been given an example from Jesus. Even though he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Last thing, we saw that they said, okay, he said he would rise. So let's keep the disciples from coming, stealing his body, so that this other lie will be worse than the first. And Pilate said, look, I'll give you a band of soldiers. Do whatever you can to seal it. So they took a guard of soldiers, and they put a Roman seal on that tomb that couldn't be broken, and they stood guard. I wrote this in my notes, and that's how we're going to end tonight to get ready for next week as we close our study of Matthew. I love how the Jews just had a bunch more people to be there to witness what's going to happen next. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.